2: The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, January 11th, the Look Who's Back edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate. My kids are Eliza, who's seven years old, and Leo, who's three and a half.
3: And I'm Carvel Wallace, a writer and a podcaster in Oakland, California. And I'm the father to Georgia,
2: who's 12, and Ezra, who is 14. Rebecca Lavoie is out this week, so we are being joined by a familiar voice.
1: Hi, I'm Allison Benedict, uh, an editor at Slate, and the mom of Harry, who's nine, Sam, who is almost seven, it's next week seven, so I'll say seven, and Wally, who's four.
2: Glad to have you back, Allison. I thought you were blanking on one of your kids' yeah, ages, so but I you weren't. You were wow. just making sure to I get was it the right. Yeah. who did that. Yeah, <laughs> nicely done. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> this week on our show. Slate writer Ruth Graham wrote a column four years ago asking, why do parents and parenting blogs make parenting sound so terrible? And then she had a kid. She's going to join us to revisit that piece today. Uh, Plus, we have a question from a listener whose mother-in-law refuses to visit This is apparently a problem for her. And as always, we'll have triumphs and fails. We'll have recommendations. And on Slate Plus, Allison says she is going to ask me and Carvel for help with a parenting quandary of her own. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Let's start with triumphs and fails. Allison, you're the guest now. You want to go first?
1: Yes. But since I've been out for such a long time, am I allowed to have two if one is really quick? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, okay. What do you think, listeners?
2: <laughs> do you want Allison to have two? <laughs> yeah! okay. Dial in right now. <laughs>
1: so I have a really quick triumph and then a big fail. Uh, the triumph is just that Harry, who's nine, uh, is really scared of the dark. And he always has been really scared of the dark. And for a long time we managed around this and we let him like have a giant desk lamp instead of a nightlight shining straight in his face uh, when he went to bed at night. <laughs> But now he seems like, you know, he's in fourth grade. It seems time to get over this fear, and particularly because he wants to have sleepovers all the time and other kids don't really love sleeping in, like, blindingly bright rooms. Uh, And neither does his brother, who he shares a room with. So we tried reasoning with him, you know, the whole there's nothing to be scared of. We tried shame, to be honest, (laughs) Uh, but neither (laughs) worked. Uh, We tried just banning the desk lamp and forcing him to use a single nightlight. And on a couple of nights when he actually did this, um, like we could convince him to go to bed like this, he would wake up in the middle of the night hysterical. So finally, we started a program of putting a regular nightlight in his room and leaving the hall light on and his door completely wide open. And then every night we shut the door Mm -hmm. a half inch more each night. We kept a ruler and a notepad to record progress by the door. And it took forever uh, and we told him he couldn't have sleepovers until the door was fully shut. But last night, we finally shut it, clicked till it clicked. And now I think I nice. think we've done it. Who knows? Tonight could be back to fully open. But I think we've done it.
2: But he knew it was closing, right? You oh, yeah. We you talked about You weren't, like, gaslighting him with this no, 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 closing No, <laughs> we talked
1: about it. He was a little too obsessed with the ruler and the notebook and, like, wanted to make sure it was correct every night. And but that's a far. good – that's a control thing,
2: presumably. Yeah. So that's helpful in a yeah. way. Yeah. Yes. So cool. it
1: worked. If anyone else is struggling with nice. it. So that's the triumph. The fail is actually something I mentioned on Slack the other day. Um, it's one of the more awful things I have <laughs> probably ever done. Uh, it happened several years Oof. ago. Get ready. Carvel just, I think, like gasped <laughs> before <laughs> even heard it. One of the worst uh, things you've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> now we're Gosh, really saying pearl. something. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it's Snow Day related. So I thought I would talk about it here given that it's Snow Day season. So you guys know how on snow days, uh, particularly when there are, like, several snow days in a row or the middle of winter when you've had, like, a bunch of different patches of snow days and you and your partner, if you have a partner, are, like, in negotiations about who has to watch the kids. Uh-huh. So several years ago when we were still living in Brooklyn, there was a bad storm after a bunch of other bad snowstorms. I wish I, I can't remember which winter this was. But anyway, we both kind of were like, we have to work. Like, we just – we There was no give, and I don't remember what it was that we thought was so important, but we said we have to work. So we asked our longtime nanny, Frida, who was, who was working for us, you know, still at that point, to come in, even though it was just, like, really, really awful outside. I think I phrased it as, like, you know, if there's any way you could come in, that would be great because we really need to work. And she said yes, uh, probably because she thought she had to. <laughs> uh, and then she texted a while later saying... She'd been waiting for a bus for forever, but no buses were coming and that she couldn't get a car service, probably because there had been Mm -hmm. a massive snowstorm and that she was going to walk. And I replied on text, "Okay, thank you, (laughs) (laughs) which in retrospect, I'm guessing was not the text she was expecting to get. and was like obviously just like a really horrible thing to do. And about a half hour later, she called me from Prospect Park, where she had been just like trekking through the snow to try to get to our house and asked if we could come Oh. Yes, asked if we could come get her because I should say we had a car. The car was like buried under several storms that we had never dug it out and, uh, you know, like a street away. But, uh, you know, (laughs) again, in retrospect, we should have dug it out if we wanted her to come and gone to get her. And at that point, I realized all of this. I mean, I probably realized it before and I was shutting it off because I thought my work was so important. And I dug the car out and I went and got her and I drove her home and... Uh, I will never, ever do that again. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. And it's particularly ridiculous because there just couldn't have been anything that important about my work. Like, I'm not like a surgeon. Mm -hmm. Like, there was no reason Mm -hmm. to do that. And I just think I just, like, shut off my conscience and was just like, it would you know, I I want my babysitter to come. Anyway, Frida Mm -hmm. worked for us for many years after that. And we are still close and in touch. And I think she's forgiven me. But uh, it just... You know, it was not a high. It was not a high moment, and I think that, um, you know, if you're in the position to try to figure out whether your caretaker should come or not on a bad snow day, don't ask them to come.
2: <laughs> I mean, it gets at like the way in which, when you're a parent, so much of your life depends on systems working, and those systems. If you have childcare help, then those systems like prominently hinge on that person, and when there's some sort of external event that throws those systems into disarray, uh it can it can really screw you up. Like not just it can really screw up your life or your routine or your day, but it can like get into your head and make you do things that in retrospect you wish you hadn't done or wouldn't want to do again. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. I have a snow day one. Okay. But mine's a triumph. <laughs> Sorry. Good. No, that's
1: good. I don't want you to have snow <laughs> Sorry, everybody.
2: <laughs> uh. uh so a lot of snow in New York recently as 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 most of our listeners are probably aware. Um we had a, a few days where we were in at home with the kids and um we had some help and now we're Childcare providers were able to make it to the house uh, when when we needed them mostly. And and there was a day when – a couple days over the weekend when Tally and I were, were stuck inside with them and we got a little bit of cabin fever, but we mostly traded off like who was getting some stuff done and who was with the kids. Um, but there was one day when we had all been inside for way too long and it really seemed important to get the kids outside. And it was cold, but it wasn't so cold that, like, you shouldn't take them outside even for a little bit. And we decided that I would take them outside in the snow for, like, 10 minutes, 15 minutes just to, like, blow off some steam and get outside. Uh, And I presented this to the kids, like, hey, guess what? We're going to put on our snow pants and we're going to go outside and play in the snow for a minute. And then we're going to come back in and have our chocolates. Yeah. They were not. <laughs> they into fell, this. To the <laughs> they it fell to the ground. <laughs> they literally fell to the ground. They were not having it at all. And like part of it is like you know they don't want to go outside; it's freezing. But part of it is like when people in general and my children in particular, and also me, have been inside for a long time, their bodies sort of feel as though they've lost the ability to function in the outside world. <laughs> uh, and as a as a former indoor kid myself. I mostly try to respect my kids' desire not to go outside, but it was really important (laughs) that we get outside. And I tried bribing them. I told them there would only be hot chocolate if if they went outside and came back. Uh, And I could get one of them on board at a time but not the other one. And then I would tell mm. the other one like, oh, so you're, you're, your sister's going to have hot chocolate and you're not. How are you going to feel about that? <laughs> so I, I would be able to threaten them too. And I would threaten them that, like they weren't going to get any more videos for the rest of the weekend. I did all this stuff. And it took me, I sort of, I, I was watching the clock because the light was going. Like this was late enough in the day that we were on a, a, a timeline. Uh, and it took literally 45 minutes To from announcement to like everybody has their snow pants and their boots and their gloves on and is ready to go outside. (laughs) And the deal we had reached was if you stand on the stoop for 10 seconds, (laughs) then you can come (laughs) inside and have some hot chocolate. That was the deal I was willing to make for them. Wow. And of course, as I knew what happened. As soon, literally as soon as we get outside, we don't even get to the 10 seconds. They're running down the stairs and falling down in the <laughs> snow and picking up clumps of snow and throwing it at me and throwing it at one another and shouting, snow, Woohoo!" Like the Like, the, they don't even pretend to hang on to any of their aversion to going outside. <laughs> they just immediately flip right over. We wound up spending almost half an hour outside in the snow. It was super fun. And then we came inside to have hot chocolate. Um, that was my snow day triumph. Carvel, what about you? <laughs> uh,
3: man, <laughs> my head is spinning. I have so many triumphs and fails. But I'm just going to go with something that uh, I feel like uh, is, a, a, pers- is a, a personal fail, even though it was um, reflected in my lovely son, who a couple of weeks ago I talked about how um, – He accomplished this major thing at his school. He goes to an arts high school. He's a ninth grader. And he was cast in a two-person play that was open to all high school students, including seniors who had been acting at the school for eight years because it starts in middle school. And he auditioned for this play, this two-person play, uh, Danny in the Deep Blue Sea by John Patrick Shanley, which is a play I actually did in college. And uh, he got the part of Danny, which is amazing for a ninth grader. He was like, he's that kid. He's the freshman starting quarterback. But of theater. And so, you know, he's really excited and everything. And so he's going through these rehearsals and he goes through the whole process. They've been rehearsing since the beginning of the school year and he's come home at night, sometimes close to tears. Dad, I'm in over my head and it's so hard and I don't know how to do this. And the next day, oh, dad, I'm really getting it. I understand, you know, the whole thing. So we go through two weeks of winter break and turns out he's supposed to be off book when we get back from winter break, which means he's supposed to have his lines memorized. Show opens in not this weekend, but the following weekend. And he has two weeks of winter break, uh, in which his only task is to memorize these lines and get off book. So he does not memorize the lines (laughs) or get off book. He plays many a video game. Uh, he hangs out with many a friend. He even goes on a couple of dates. There's a whole nother thing. I dropped him off at the movies with some girl. Like what the hell is this? He did all that stuff. He got new clothes. He really enjoyed. He slept till one PM Mondays, he really was enjoying his adolescence, but he wasn't doing his lines. I didn't know he was supposed to be off book on this play until Sunday morning when I called him up to be like, hey, I'm, I'm on my way over there. Want me to bring you the blah, what do you want, breakfast, let's hang out, what we're going to do, you know? And he goes, oh, I, I can't go anywhere, dad. I'm like, why? It's like, I have homework. I'm like, what's your homework? So like, I have to memorize, I got to memorize the lines for this play. I'm like, y- you had you had two weeks. He's like, yeah, I know. I just, it, you know, I it, it, there was other stuff. I had to do other stuff, but I got, I, you know, I, I'm mostly done. I'm mostly good. Can you come run lines with me? I'm like, sure. So we go there, and his mother has been running lines with him in the morning. which <laughs> is really weird for her because it's like a love story, and uh, and then and then um and then I I pick up and I start running lines with him, and he is like maybe sixty percent off book. I mean, there's entire passages that he just doesn't know at all. And, um, I, the reason it felt like a fail for me is because this is exactly how I conducted my life when I was a teenager. Super last minute. Everything got put off. Everything was procrastination. Everything was, I could only get stuff done under the adrenaline of panic. And I thought, oh my God, did I pass this down to him? And at the beginning, when he was explaining to me and his mom how all of our plans for the day were going to be sidelined because he has to, we have to spend the whole day working on lines with him. We tried to explain, you know, you had two weeks. This is kind of a you situation. Like, you sort of painted yourself into this corner. And, you know, at the very least, all we're trying to do is maybe get you to see your part in this. And maybe next time around, make different decisions so you experience less pain. But even that, he was not amenable to. It's not my fault. I had so many things to do. It's called a break. This was his big argument. It's called a break, Dad, because you're supposed to be on a break. I kind of agree with You're not supposed to do stuff him. during your break. <laughs> you didn't have to <laughs> do <laughs> the play. <laughs> He's, you're not supposed to do stuff during the break. This was his big... He really thought that he... Na- I mean, he really felt that he nailed some serious rhetorical points with his... With his Well structured argument. And I was like, yeah, I'm not fully buying that, but whatever. Water under the bridge. The point is now we have to do this. So I don't know. He's still struggling now. He's, he's in full panic mode. He's in the car this morning running lines. He's, you know, he's in adrenaline mode because now the threat has become real. The threat of public embarrassment, of shame, of the director looking at him, of him being the one guy, because they do, they cast, even though it's a two person play, they cast four people for each part each people do plays every night so they cast a total of eight high school students in this play and he was he's the only freshman everyone else is a senior and uh and there's one junior i think but uh and so now he's in panic mode and adrenaline mode and he he, he's he's like stressed and he's not you know his hair is not combing his hair he's just like and i and i i just feel that personal thing that you feel as a parent when you realize this is this is me, this is my character defect that I've handed down to this poor, unwitting child that he now has. And I'm seeing all of my own stuff played out in him. And that's such a painful thing. And it's most painful because you can't fix it. You can't fix it for him. So the honest truth is that I I think he's probably going to do it. I still think he's really, really well-equipped to do this. I think his work is really good, but I'm really nervous for him. Cause I really don't know if he's going to be able to pull it off cause he's waited so long. And I just, my fingers are crossed and it's just, it's just so cringy watching, um, watching, you know, Joe's, Joe once said that having kids is like having all your shortcomings grow arms and legs and run around outside of you. And that is the way that I feel. It's so cringy to watch all of my own laziness and, um, and, uh, just, inability to do work all manifested in this fourteen year old who I love and want the best things for.
2: So do you, do you feel like you fail? should have like known about this and and been nagging him to do fifteen minutes a day or whatever the mature process would have been? I
3: mean, I that may have led to a different outcome, I don't know, but I also am like, you know, you're this is I mean, he it's like you're you know you're 14 you take the bus around you go on dates you you have your own money like you sign up for this play you know you're supposed to memorize your lines i, I can't nag you to do your work you know you're supposed to do your work yeah i am um,
1: very much with you on that i think that would have been a fail if you had sort of managed like. it i feel like this yeah. is i'm not i don't want to belittle this <clears throat> but i also feel like this is like seems very Typical? (laughs) Like, it does not surprise me that a teenager slept through his winter break and did not – like, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, maybe three or four of the eight people (laughs) were in the same position as your son who got this. And again, like, he shouldn't have – he should have done it. And I I get what you're saying about seeing your own sort of worst habits played out uh, in your children and how kind of – difficult it is to not be able to teach them the lessons you learned but he'll probably learn yeah. a lesson from this right
3: i i would like to i would like to think so i mean i think a lot of what i try to do as a parent is since i can't really make them do stuff before they understand how to do it i try to just provide a little context for their learning so when they're reflecting back on it they have i'm just providing a little like ped, ped, pedagogical framework for them to like process the experience that they had so yeah, hopefully he does learn from it. I don't know if he will, but I mean it's it is I I think I think maybe it would have helped if I had checked in at the beginning of break and said, "Hey, what do you have school-wise for this upcoming 2 weeks?" Yeah, that's that's and maybe the if I'd done that. That, that
2: I yeah. fail at that too. But the part of like teaching them the executive skills that I myself have only sort of uh, that have come hard to me and and that I still have to like very consciously focus on, like Kids, or at least my kids, are not born with an innate ability to schedule and prioritize and make sure they do stuff properly. Um, That's insane. uh, Yeah. And like we've been having this around guitar lessons, but like she's supposed Mm. to practice 15 minutes a day. That was the condition (laughs) of like taking guitar lessons. But what I didn't quite realize is that that means that I'm supposed to make her practice for 15 minutes a day. (laughs) That part sucks. Or that
1: she could agree to that condition and then just not do it oh that occurred to me <laughs> okay <laughs> it just didn't
2: occur to me that there would have to be some enforcement mechanism yeah. and that it would be me
1: yeah this is
3: why yeah to
2: it, and practice. it's hard too because one of the issues that one of the household
3: issues we have is that his sister is the exact opposite she would never have waited to the last minute to do anything it drives her crazy to wait to the last minute she does she goes so above and beyond that in some, we have to reel her in like relax like she got a b plus on an english assignment and was apoplectic and i was like dude Come on, man! Like you did everything you could. It's gonna be okay. And so she, she, her homework is always like, you know, this was due Friday, but I turned it in Monday, and then so I could spend Tuesday working on the extra credit, so that Wednesday I could do the science project, which is due next Wednesday. You know, that's the way she operates her thing. So I think in some ways it does, it does a screw with my expectations and understanding of what's normal for a kid. You know, another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it?
2: Before we move on, let's do the business. As always, if you have a question you'd like us to answer on air, leave us a message at 424-255-7833, or you can email us at at com. I also want to tell you about another great Slate podcast. If you want to cut to the core of today's issues, check out I Have to Ask. Each week on the show, Slate's resident interrogator Isaac Chotner talks one-on-one with newsmakers, celebrities, and cultural icons to help us better understand them and our world. Recent episodes include interviews with New York Times film critic A.O. Scott on the post-Weinstein era and Stalin biographer Stephen Kotkin about getting inside the mind of an autocrat. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. On Slate Plus today, Allison is going to ask me and Carvel for some parenting advice about a problem she's having with her middle kid, Harry. To hear that segment and others like it, and to get all your Slate podcasts with no ads, sign up for Slate Plus. Uh, for just $35 for your first year, you can help cover at the cost of producing this show and your other favorite Slate shows And in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this one and our other shows and a ton of other great benefits. If you would like to support mom and dad are fighting, go to slate.com slash momanddadplus and join Slate Plus today. That's slate.com slash momanddadplus. Okay, back to the show. Here's how Ruth Graham's 2014 Slate column begins. Recently, a listicle started proliferating on my Facebook page titled 31 Things No One Told You About Being a Parent. It informed me that becoming a parent means gaining weight, living in filth, and never having time to read the news. The listicle's title was wrong, however. Thanks to the internet, everyone tells me these things about being a parent all the time. So Ruth wrote this deep dive into the bad parenting internet uh, and explained how much it made parenting seem like an endless series of chores and crises uh, and anxiety and the the loss of everything that one finds valuable or pleasurable in life. Uh, and after writing down her fears about parenting and Slate, uh, Ruth went on to have a daughter. Uh, and so we thought we would revisit this column with you, Ruth, uh, uh, now from the perspective of someone who actually knows what it's like. Uh, thanks a lot for being on the show. Let me ask you first, when you wrote this piece, uh, how, what were you reading and and what was the impression that it was giving you?
0: Sure. I mean, I guess as I put it in the lead there, I was just sort of reading what flitted across my social media streams. So it was, you know, a handful of blogs. I'm trying to think. There was Deuce, there's Rage Against the Minivan, you know, there's all these women who kind of like new Irma Bombeck types who have made names for themselves, um, blogging about, you know, the horrors, the funny, the hilarious horrors of parenting. So I was interested in that. I mean, I I was a woman in my 30s and, you know, interested in becoming a parent and like enjoyed kids and liked reading about kids. And so, um, yeah, I would click through to a lot of that stuff because it is entertaining and
2: funny. And did it actually make you feel ambivalent about having kids?
0: no <laughs> i mean i I wish I had had some yeah, I had been a nanny in college and had been around a lot of kids and um i I can't say that like a you know scaremongering listicle actually made me waver in wanting to have kids um it did give me pause about what having kids would actually. Be like, I guess I hadn't thought too much about the, um, I don't know, the kind of daily horrors and exhaustion of it. So I had sort of thought of that in the big picture, but, um, these kinds of posts and, um, slideshows and all of that, um, kind of, I don't know, gave a glimpse into like what it was like in the day to day that did sort of, um, I, yeah I don't know it made, it made me it made me a little bit apprehensive about it tipped it toward apprehension away from excitement i guess
2: and and your daughter is now how old
0: she's two and a half now
2: and over the past two and a half years, how has the reality of having a small child uh compared to the sort of slightly caricatured terrifying comedic reality that that you were apprehending from these blogs?
0: You know, I, I was actually, I was rereading the piece and I, I haven't really changed my opinion on about it at all. Like I think it's, parenting is of course really hard, but it's also really fun and funny and rewarding. And I, I don't, my daughter woke up at like 4.30 this morning and wouldn't go back to sleep. And that's insanely annoying, but it's also, you know, then she was like, me have a good sleep, you know, when she, when she finally got up and it's funny. Like it's, I, you know, I get the urge. I, sometimes that kind of like deadpan kvetching is the only thing you can do. And so I totally understand why people turn to that tone online. And I've done it myself over the last few years. But I also think, you know, I don't know. Parenting is good. <laughs> it's a good thing. Um, and it's just not the, 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 it's not the, the sum total of all of these kind of like mini horror stories. Um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't reflect my experience at all.
1: So your house is really clean?
0: <laughs> I have a cleaning lady now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, uh,
0: and it's still not really clean, but it's clean enough. <laughs> it's like I'm I'm not dissatisfied with how clean it is.
1: <laughs> um yeah. I guess like, I feel like a little torn on this on these kinds of pieces. I mean, I think uh I basically agree with you and like the sort of um the proliferation of them probably you know, is more the problem than the actual like expression of yeah. how tough it is to have kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the tr- the popularity of it. Like you, I think there's a line in your piece that you say like that's the, you know, the easiest way to get a parenting book deal is to talk about parenting mm-hmm. like this. But I also think that it's true that it's hard and there are lots of bad parts and you also can't totally articulate the good parts. Or, or like, what makes it worth it? You can't totally, like, that's hard to articulate, even though it is. And that's what a lot of these pieces say. You know, essentially these pieces are saying, like, oh, my God, it's so much shit, but I'm glad I have kids.
0: Yeah, I mean, because you also also get shit if you articulate only the good parts. Like, that's a whole Mm -hmm. other corner of the parenting internet that is probably more problematic and certainly much more annoying is, like, the gushing, um, you know, the kind of, like, happy Instagram family stuff where like nothing goes wrong and the house is always just magically clean on its own and the kids are adorable all the time. And like, um, that's probably like more corrosive and frustrating in its way. And so I think this is like a natural pushback against that. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Well, in some ways, it always it strikes me that, that a lot of these questions really have less to do with parenting and more to do with the way the internet works anyway, right? That like the, that, mm-hmm. the proliferation is the issue. And so it's like when we hear – I mean, I think about this every time there's like a cycle and then a reaction cycle. Like Oprah makes the speech and then everyone's like, we love Oprah. Then everyone's like, wait, we can't love Oprah. So um, I think a lot of what this has to do with when I think about it is like not necessarily the content, like Allison said, but the proliferation of the content the amount of it. So if you're an individual viewer, you're seeing not just one post that's like, oh, I'm a bad mommy. You're seeing like 300. And so then you, particu- you personally become inundated. This is exactly how I feel about reading about parenting on the internet. And um, so I guess it makes me wonder if a lot of this just doesn't have to do with the fact that, that social media continues to feed us the same content over and over again, making any trend um, exhausting after a period of time.
2: Yeah, that's also, like, yes. that's the intrinsic problem with Facebook, right, is that as soon as you like something, Facebook decides it's going to give you more of that thing until you start to hate it. It also <laughs> encourages
1: yeah. us to have our own parenting shtick. Like, I was curious if you guys think you have, like, a uh, certain sort of, like, parenting persona online when you're writing about oh, your own kids or your, yeah, you family. Know, yeah, that's a good family. question.
0: Um, yeah. I'm interested to hear what – I don't know. I mean, I guess I do – Sometimes, like, it's a really difficult needle to thread because I, I'm definitely not the, like, cheerful love every moment of it, but I, in partly having, because, because I wrote this piece, I, like, try to avoid the sort of, like, funny whining, although, I know I've definitely done it. I was thinking about people who do this well. Like I the writer, uh, Rahman Alam is like really like threads this needle so perfectly for me. He's really funny on social media about like funny complaints that aren't <laughs> aren't annoying to me. I don't know, it's tough. What do you, what do you guys think your online parenting personas are?
2: I mean part of this show to break the fourth wall for a second <laughs> uh, involves coming. about in, yeah Revolution. you forgot about this show Allison <laughs> easy enough for you to forget that. Uh, part of this show involves coming on here and talking about parenting hopefully in a, in a way that's honest that reflects something accurate about the experience but also that you know you, you, you don't talk into a microphone and not think about what you're saying and how it's coming across and what kind of impression you're giving um, and so since I started doing this I feel like I've had to think about it more and the the two um the the two areas that you identify in the piece the performative bad mommy parenting and the like everything is perfect and and curated and beautiful instagram parenting um loom large in my mind as particular things to avoid and Mm -hmm. then i i I feel myself trying to like um slalom ski in between those two obstacles uh and then also say something that actually happened (laughs)
3: Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I think one of the tricks of social media is that it makes public figures out of everyone, even if you're not really equipped to be a public figure. So um, even if you're just like a regular person, you somehow have to develop the capacity to speak well to a large audience, which I think a lot of people come up short with. So, like, uh, I mean, that's just kind of an observation. But to answer your question, like, I... Sometimes I try to think about who I'm writing it for and when I think about writing stuff online, but this is because I'm a professional like content maker, I guess, for lack of a less grody term. Um, when I think I think about who I'm writing it for, not, not, not which audience am I writing it for, but I feel like as a writer or a person who puts words into the world, a big part of the reason I do it is to provide voice to people who want to say something but don't have the words to say it. And so hmm. I'm like... If I can articulate something, it's sort of like I'm a professional articulator. It's like, you know, I'm like sort of like a, a portrait artist for, like, feelings. So it's like I try and, like, say things that people want said and feel like aren't being said but would feel really satisfied if they were said. And so I try to say those things. And sometimes that is trying to articulate um, the joy and gratitude of parenting, Um and then other times that is trying to articulate to let people know that it's okay that you struggle because we're all struggling. It doesn't mean you're a bad person that you struggle. It doesn't mean that you're failing as a parent. But – so that's the the one – the two things. But then the third thing is that you kind of have to do that without – there's this level of honesty or something that you have to acquire that, that tries to keep it from turning into – Something that's a major annoyance to many, many people. So it is a thread that you have to, I think this, this notion of like threading the needle is a really accurate one. I will, I will also say you mentioned in your um, piece, the blog, Shut the Fuck Up Parents, um, mm-hmm. which I remember when I first saw that, I don't, re- very few things online like really offend me. I'm just used to mm-hmm. everyone kind of being an asshole, but that site really got under my skin <laughs> because I felt like, wow, it's like, um, it, it just it being a parent is uh does there is a possibility that you could feel like you're never doing anything right and Mm -hmm. so um it's it it piles on when someone's like yeah shut the fuck up no one wants to hear about your parenting and you're just like yeah like uh, you know it's 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 it has and you say this in your article but it has made me rethink a lot about what i say about parenting online even though that's what i do for a job so i don't know it's complex is what you're saying.
0: Well, another thing I think about this phenomenon that grates a little bit on me is that the people um writing this stuff you know it, they're people who are already thinking a lot about parenting and reading a lot about it and you know reading about different theories of it and working on it and obviously have time- you know they're spending a lot of time with their kids and they're yeah. they're not actually bad you know bad mommies um so there's a little bit of like. Uh You know, I I don't know. It's an extension. It's almost sort of like brag, brag, complaining or humble bragging or something about it. Like they're they're obviously doing fine by just about every measure. So it gets a little bit um, there's like a little bit of a lack of perspective in some of this stuff, too.
1: One offshoot of this conversation is like how parents talk to non-parents about parenting. Mm -hmm. Like I'm thinking about like how I would have talked to 2014 Ruth if like you weren't sure if you wanted to have a kid. I could see a version of a conversation where like. I would be conscious of not trying to talk you into it in, like, this sort of way that, like, I'm conscious of not saying that I really like my life in the suburbs because I feel like I sound like I'm Mm -hmm. overcompensating. Uh, But there's, like, no – there's, like, sort of no – you can either say – like, you can either be very upfront about how tough it is um, because you sort of want – you don't want to be, like, you know, everyone should have kids and be one of us uh, or you can – You know, say what you really think, which is, like, it's wonderful, and you should do it if you want to Mm -hmm. do it. Um, And... I just, I just yeah, think I those just, conversations can be tough.
0: Yeah, and I, I kind of, I think there's, I don't know, there's like a lot of, um, public validation. This probably says more about just like the online circles than I run in, but it seems like very cool and acceptable now to like validate someone's choice not to have kids, which of course I fully validate. Like you should only have kids if you want to have kids. But part of me <laughs> does kind of want to like help the, the parenting brand. <laughs> like it's really fun and it's really great and that's kind of not, um, Uh, Yeah, I don't know. That's like not as not as cool to talk about online, I guess, as as complaining about the day, day to day tedium. But I actually think it's it's wonderful and rewarding.
2: It's tough because the wonderful, rewarding parts actually don't translate all that well. Like mm-hmm. my children are so funny and adorable, mm-hmm. and just I just love hugging them. <laughs> but mm-hmm. that that doesn't mean that you non-parents that's are going to find okay. my children lovely and adorable and charming <laughs> and want to <laughs> hug them. Like it's it, unfortunately it's a pleasure, or maybe fortunately it's a pleasure that's specific to me. And
1: yeah, it's a minefield. Like if you talk about experiencing this love for another person that you hadn't expe- you wouldn't you know hadn't mm-hmm. experienced before, then that's saying to somebody that if they don't have children, they don't experience yeah. the level of love. That yeah. you you know that it's it's complicated,
3: yeah, yeah, but and again like i mean i i i i I feel like the hardest part of talking about parenting online for me has been threading that needle um um like trying to find a way to be honest about what it's like but not make it seem to people who don't have kids or don't want to have kids or have sort of their own our, our own I should say sets of issues with our parents because I believe that you know like <laughs> I believe that a lot of times when I react to other parenting stuff I'm even before I had kids I was reacting to my own relationship to my parents on some subconscious level um, I would say the hardest part of talking about parenting online is threading that needle and again I feel like the fact that o- the way online works that it's like trend and then something becomes cool to talk about and a way to talk about it becomes cool and then the other way becomes not cool and and then when something becomes cool to talk about then you're inundated with it then it quickly becomes not cool because we're all sick of it and then and the cycle for any style is like 24 hours before everyone's done with it and, and starting to push back I'd say that that makes it really hard. And so maybe we don't have to talk about parenting online a whole lot. <laughs> it's one what? Or on the podcast. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> what is Sorry, you're talking. blowing up our spot here. I, I
3: literally, I didn't just break the fourth wall. I broke all four, <laughs> four of the walls.
1: <laughs> if this was the, is the, if this was the like annoying prevalent mode in 2014, what is it now? Is it still this?
4: mm
0: I don't, I have less time to read about parenting now. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um,
0: no, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I I guess I do feel like it's similar to this. Now, now the parenting reading I do is more in like private Facebook groups. It feels a little bit like mm-hmm. less performative. Um, and mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like them, I guess we're probably not supposed to call them mommy blogs, but that the parenting blogs, um, I don't know. Are they as huge as they were a few years ago? You guys are probably more in in tune with us than I am.
2: I think they're not. I think the mommy blog business model um, that you, you Mm -hmm. identify Heather Armstrong who who wrote the blog Deuce Mm -hmm. um, as the sort of pioneer of that model and, and who made a lot of money from content sponsorships and stuff like that. I think that's been replaced by the more Instagram friendly, look how perfect my house is. And Mm -hmm. by the way, here are my perfectly made up children sitting in the corner of the frame um, by that kind of thing, just from a, financial um, perspective i think blogging like is less of a families. business than it was mm-hmm. oh right it's moved to mm-hmm. youtube yeah, youtube families mm-hmm.
3: i think is the thing yeah i think
2: they're doing that, a again, lot of this like bad parenting on youtube in sometimes yeah, horribly that's abusive ways. i was gonna, say. I think that's
0: probably I was gonna say they probably are really bad parents no they really are <laughs> yeah. yeah
3: there's there are some bad parents who who do youtube stuff for laughs and kicks and likes and subscribes yeah. um And so our concern about,
2: like, the niceties of, like, finding a voice for parenting content in the Internet is being left behind by the inevitable progress of technology towards the visual. Too bad. (laughs) You'll keep it to video. (laughs) That seems like a good place to end it. That seems like a good place to end it. Good point, Allison. Um, Ruth Graham, thank you very much for being with us. Um, The article is headlined, quote, My Life is a Waking Nightmare. uh, And we will post it on our Facebook page and on our show page.
1: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
2: Okay, time now to take a question from a listener. If you have a question for us, uh, you can call us at 424-255-7833, or you can email us at at slate.com. This question is from Elena. It's being read by our producer, Benjamin Frisch.
5: I have two boys, ages two and a half and three months old. My husband and I moved away from his family in California to Colorado about three years ago while I was pregnant with our first. Since then, my mother-in-law has visited three times, once after each of the boys was born and another visit when our oldest was about nine months old. My mother-in-law planned the first visit after our first son but since then, my husband and I have had to suggest, plan, and pay for her visits, which is becoming more difficult as we are a young family that doesn't have a ton of money to be spending on plane tickets. We have found that if we don't suggest she come visit, she won't. It was basically like pulling teeth trying to get her to come out recently after the birth of our second, even though it had been well over a year since she had last seen us. She gave excuses about how she was already taking time off this year to go to Vegas with her granddaughter's family, about how she couldn't afford the $175 plane ticket because she had to replace her dishwasher, etc., my mother-in-law has only one other grandchild, our niece, who lives about an hour away from her. She sees her just about every other weekend, blasts it all over social media about how she gets to go get mani petties together, shop together, go out to eat, you get the picture. She's pretty much obsessed with our niece, and I feel like she doesn't give two shits about our boys, as she seemingly doesn't care about coming to see them. Most recently, my husband made the suggestion to my mom that we go out and visit her for Christmas this year. Her literal words were that she would prefer that we not come out, this is because she has a long standing tradition of going down and spending Christmas morning with her granddaughter and doesn't want to have to change things up, as this was now, like I said, a tradition. At the end of the day, I do love my mother-in-law, and I just want her to want to come visit us and want a closer relationship with our boys. Am I tripping? Do you think I'm just being jealous of the relationship she has with our niece? Am I expecting too much from an out-of-state grandparent? Should I leave the ball in her court and stop suggesting and planning her visits, or do I keep trying for the sake of our kids? Thanks. Elena from Colorado.
2: Wanting somebody else to want something always works out great. (laughs) Unfortunately, this lady's mother-in-law kind of sucks,
3: right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, some something is going on. I mean, something not good is happening. There's no doubt about that. And I mean, it's interesting. I, it, it's well, the it's mother-in-law, so it makes me wonder what the husband's point of view on this is, given that it's presumably the the husband's or the spouse's mother so that's curiously absent from the story and it makes me wonder if that would be if some insight would come from that like um you know this is a person who's known this woman their whole life so they may have some insight but yeah i don't i mean as, as painful as it sounds i don't think there's anything you can do to make someone want to do something that you want them to do that is hurtful and but that hurt is like not something that can be fixed by by um sort of fixing everything for the other person because you've tried that. Hey, we'll pay for your ticket. Hey, we'll come see you. Hey, why don't you come out this time? And and according to the letter writer, all these responses are met with uh are met with resistance of some type or other, be it passive or active or some combination therein. And so at this point, I would be starting to think, uh would it be possible to have an actual conversation with this person about why that is um i'm not suggesting that you do because i don't know what all the dynamics are but that's what i'd start to think like can i do i have the kind of relationship is there the kind of trust or whatever where i could say or where my spouse could say or whatever you know mom or mother-in-law i feel like um, we, you know, you don't seem to want to come to see us and see your grandkids uh, as much as you, you know, we would like. And I wonder if there's something about that. It may lead to an important or healthy discussion because it maybe it sounds possible that this mother-in-law is harboring some kind of feeling or resentment that makes her resist. Maybe you know, I don't can't even begin to speculate on what it could be, but it could be any number of things. It's, but it's there's definitely something there, and I think if you feel like it's the relationship could possibly bear it it might be worth just kind of getting to it because the passive uh, approach doesn't seem to be making any headway and only causing frustration
1: yeah i think talking about this makes sense the only like thing i would add to what carvel said is that although it sounds um unfair and wrong the dynamic uh between your mother-in-law and her granddaughter versus the dynamic the dynamic between your mother-in-law and your kids. I would not go into that conversation with your list of, um, you know, righteous grievances about how she divides her time between the grandchildren. Like, I, I don't think that probably bringing the other grandchild into the initial conversation is the way to, uh, you know, best go about this. That's all I would say.
2: Yeah, my one other thought is, um, as Carval suggested, um, the, the letter writer's husband has an important role here and presumably has feelings about this. Like this is his mother apparently favoring his sibling's family over his family. And that's probably not like just cool with him. Um, but the fact that it's. The, the daughter-in-law, the spouse, who is writing to us about it and who's clearly very upset by it and very worked up by it and very struck by the unfairness of it all and, and has a grievance about it, and it's a legitimate grievance on behalf of her kids and presumably on behalf of her husband as well. Uh, and yet at the same time, it may be that it would be better for your family for you to try to calm this down rather than stir it up. Like, it may be if this is a problem in your husband's family, if this is a problem between your husband and his mom and his sibling, um, it may be that he needs you to, like, help everything be okay. And, and, you know, your family will be okay even without as much attention from the kid's grandmother as their cousin is getting. That's going to be okay in the end. Um, And it may be that fighting this battle is going to wind up doing more harm than good. And in as much as you can make peace with the situation and concentrate on the good stuff that you have and sort of shrug about your crazy mother-in-law, that might wind up working out better. That would be my suggestion. Mm. Yeah,
3: I mean it's always hard to know what is the – like when is the right time to bring something up versus when is the right time to like – smooth it over and let it go. I mean that's you know one of the most like difficult and sort of nuanced parts of interpersonal relations. and you know I, I guess that's why I'm kind of saying like it, you have to really investigate what the dynamics are but I you know because some some relationships have that the a, a way where there's a way to talk about this and some relationships don't but it does I just would reiterate it does strike me as odd that there's no discussion of what the <clears throat> what the what the spouse feels about this given that it's their mother.
2: All right. Uh, thanks for the question. Let us know uh, how it works out. Uh, if you have a question that you want us to tackle, give us a call at 424-255-7833 or email us at slate.com.:
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: Uh, time to do recommendations. Allison, what about you? Uh,
4: yeah, I will
1: recommend one of the cool things that um, Sam, who seven, got over the holidays, a rock tumbler. Did you guys ever have rock tumblers when you were little? That's a No. I had never have you Carvel?
3: Never heard of it. Okay,
1: it? I had never heard of it either. Uh so Sam is like into making jewelry and like doing stuff with like stones and gems, but anytime I go to like buy him some sort of set, uh he doesn't like it because it's basically looks like it's for girls, like it's like pink or has a girl's hand on it. He doesn't like beads. Um, So in addition to talking about that there are not things for girls and things for boys and we can all like whatever, uh, I also like asked around about something that, you know, he might not think – that he might be excited about for himself. Anyway, a rock tumbler is this thing that takes forever but you get these rocks and then you put them inside this thing that spins and spins and you put grit in and it spins for like eight days and then you take the rocks out and they're smooth. And then you put the rocks back in with a different grit and they spin around for – However many more days, and then they come out, and there whatever there are like four steps to this process, and at the end, you have this like cool some kind of gemstone type thing uh that you can then Whoa. make jewelry with. But. Like
2: it takes a normal rock and over the course well, no, of however it, many days turns it into a, a shiny rock, gem. I don't think
1: we haven't tried it with just like rocks we found on the ground. They provide you with uh. Uh, rocks, but but when we but I but my husband seemed to think this is like a thing that every boy had growing up. Uh, <laughs> what? I'm glad to hear that you guys. Alchemy? disagree. is that your, your uh, husband? And he says wizard? you can do stuff with just like rocks outside. They're not going to turn into diamonds, but they'll look cool and pretty. Uh, so that has been a fun process and so I recommend a rock tumbler if you happen to have a kid who's into stones or making jewelry uh, and then also uh the Science Museum in Richmond, Virginia we happen to be passing through Richmond, Virginia and uh I don't know I feel like we've been to like a lot of hands-on kids-oriented science museums over the years and this was just a particularly good one so if you're ever around there check it out
2: Great mm. uh, Carval, you want to go?
3: Yeah, my recommendation is uh, from uh, from my daughter, Georgia, who just got finished reading a book called Home of the Brave by Catherine Applegate. It's the realistic fiction, sort of a YA novel, maybe 10, 11 and up, uh, about uh, an African immigrant who comes to live in Minnesota and befriends a cow and uh, comes to understand and learn the way this country works and um, develops a has to navigate through all the emotions of being far away from his homeland and trying to make sense of life in this new world. Um, she seemed to really like it. She was adamant that I tell everyone about it. It's called Home of the Brave. It's by Katherine Applegate.
1: Nice. We should get, like, well, this is not my show. You should get kids, <laughs> <laughs> kids' books recommendation. I like that idea of, like, kids saying <laughs> which books. Yeah, parents should buy for their yeah.
2: kids. Carvel farms it out to Georgia every week. Oh really? Oh, yeah. sorry. Okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Georgia is Georgia is a
2: subcontractor.
3: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good strategy.
2: Um, I am going to recommend a uh, a series of books that Eliza has been really enjoying, uh, which are called The Wollstonecraft Detective Agency by a guy named Jordan Stratford. Uh, the premise of the books is it's Victorian detectives. One of the detectives is uh, like a 14-year-old Ada Lovelace, the pioneering computer programmer who was the sister of Lord Byron. And the other detective is like a 10-year-old Mary Godwin who would go on to become Mary Shelley and write Frankenstein. So you have this sort of brilliant scientific mind, a la Sherlock Holmes, and this more creative but also younger character, a la Dr. Watson. But they're also these two... Will grow up to be these two famous women, and we're also in a Victorian milieu, and they're like exciting, suspenseful detective stories. But they're also solving mysteries with the brilliant mind of Ada Lovelace, and there's all this historical stuff as well. Once you have the concept, the book basically writes itself. <laughs> but it's a pretty cool concept, and and the the person who had the concept then successfully executed on it. Uh, and Eliza loves these, and um, th- uh, I have read a little bit of them with her, and and they're super fun. Uh, so that's the Wollstonecraft Detective Agency series by Jordan Stratford. And that's our show. If you have a question for us, give us a call at 424-255-7833. Let us know what you thought of this show and all of our other shows on our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash Mom and Dad Are Fighting. This show is produced by Benjamin Frisch for Carvel Wallace and Allison Benedict. I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll see you next week.